Okay, please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Because we like not only to hear the Word of God, but to see it in front of our very eyes. 1 Peter chapter 1. We are going chapter by chapter through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 17 says this. This is the Apostle Peter writing by the Holy Spirit. He says, and if you call on the Father. It's not a glorious thing that God is our Father. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. Some translations say your visit here. In fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He, Jesus, indeed was foredained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being able to gather here, to sing to you, to dedicate new life to you, a child, and to open your word and have our hearts exposed to your love and everything that you are. Please, Lord, open up our minds and ears, eyes, and soul to what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So what does God say to someone who lives in a place where it is illegal to follow Jesus? A place where believing and following Jesus is outlawed. A place where Christians are rounded up en masse, arrested, imprisoned, and sentenced to death for their faith where being a Christian causes you to lose your job or lose your business, where being a Christian means having your home, your property taken from you. What does God say to a, a man, a woman, a people who are undergoing an extreme kind of trial like that? Well, the answer is right here in First Peter because that's exactly what was going on in the lives of the men and women who he was writing to. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins his letter to these men and women. Verse 3 of this chapter 
saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, meaning has given us new birth, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Interesting thing he does here. The first thing he does is draw this afflicted people into worship. That's what he does. This might seem like the last thing in the world that we would ever do in such an extreme trial as, as the things these, uh, the type of things that these folks were, were uh, going through. But it's the first place, the, the very place the Lord always wants you to go, his people to go, when catastrophe or big time fiery trials come their way. Job in the book of Job, right after he lost his family, his home, and all his possessions, he cried out what? He cried out, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. David, as soon as he heard, King David, as soon as he heard the news about the death of his son, he, he did what? He got up, he cleansed himself, he put a fresh set of clothes on, and where did he go? Anyone? To the temple to worship God. King Hezekiah, later on, a descendant of David, in the line of the Messiah that went right to Jesus. Wonderful king. A time of unbelievable trial in his life. The city, the capital of the city he was king of, was surrounded by 180,000 enemy soldiers, the Assyrians, who had just wiped out and slaughtered all the nations around them, including many of his own people. Now the city is surrounded uh, by this enemy. What does he do? He goes to the temple to worship the Lord. Peter, no different here, calls these dear men and women whose lives, at least many of them, are hanging in the balance here. He calls them to worship, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I am so thankful that the letter doesn't stop there. There is a kind of phony spirituality, a phony Let's act like church people. A phony religious system where, you know, listen, just worship the Lord. That's all you have to do. Just block everything else out. No. That's like Eastern religion. That's pantheism. But the Bible gets into the rich, immensely practical, nitty-gritty stuff of life. And so Peter doesn't stop there. He says, yes, worship. That's the first thing you need to do. But he gets right into nitty, the nitty-gritty of life, which is what? Why, Lord? Why me? Why this? Peter answers it in his letter. How, Lord? How do I get through this? Peter answers it. 
What, Lord, what specifically should I be doing in this trial? So we dis- discussed the why, the how, and began to dis- discuss the, the what last week. May want to get, you may want to get a CD, but briefly, this is what we learned. Why, Lord, why do you have me in this trial? Well, Peter answers it in verse 7. He says that the genuineness, the realness of your faith in Christ may be revealed, that it may be tested, and that it may bring glory to God, he says. Well, how about the how? How, Lord? How do I go about living this trial? Verse 8, he answers it. It says, Jesus Christ, whom having seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. Meaning, how do, I get, how do we go through a, a, a trial again? These people actually literally were having people in their family torn apart by wild beasts. Ever been in a trial where you feel like you've, you're being torn apart by wild beasts? Some of you are in it this morning. Well, them, it was actually happening. The Romans would fill up their coliseums with 50, 60, 70,000 people who would cheer on as Christians, followers of Christ, would be released to wild beasts, and they'd be torn apart. How do I do this? How do I do this when, when I'm having family members going through this kind of trials, their homes confiscated, their businesses? Verse 8 says what? Loving Jesus and believing Jesus. Loving Jesus, not running from him, running to him, going deeper in love with him, and believing his promises. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's the how. How about the what? What specifically, Lord? Give me specific advice as to what you want me to do. He says, he answers this in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now again, we discussed this last week, but of all things to be telling people who are in the midst of, of, of a trial, a fiery furnace trial, you're talking to me, Peter, that I need to be holy? Is this any time to be talking about that? How about words of comfort? Well, Peter offers those too, and we'll get more into those as we go through First Peter, but First and foremost, he's saying, after worshiping God and and walking out of your worship, you need to be holy. Why? Because when you, brother, when you, sister, get in a season of great affliction or great trial, oh, there may not be wild beasts tearing you apart, but the strength of the trial sure makes it feel like that. If you're in a trial like that, you will be tempted to return to the very lifestyle that you were saved out of. That's what in verse 14, Peter calls 
returning to your former lust. As obedient children, don't conform. Don't go back to the former lust. As in your ignorance, meaning when you were clueless. Don't go back to the life that you lived when you were clueless without God. Don't do that. Why is he telling him that? Because man, when I, when you, when we are in a great trial, when we're hit with something we did not expect or ever bargain for or want, we want that short-term comfort, man. Just getting back into those former lusts. And that's why he's saying, as obedient children... Verse 15, be holy in all your conduct because as it is written, be holy for I am holy. What is holy? We discussed this last week. Just living your life as a reflection of what Jesus' life is. Just look at Jesus' life. That's what holy is. Don't come up with some man-made religion or drop your man-made religion about what you think holy is and just look at the life of Jesus. And then we come to where we begin this morning. Verse 17. Verse 17 says this, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here. Throughout the book of Peter, he uses these temporary terms to refer to our time on earth. Some translations say your visit here. Others say your exile here. I don't particularly like that one. But our home's in heaven. We're only here visiting. The New King James says our stay here. I think the NIV says, I think some of you use that. That's a good translation. It says you're foreigner, as a foreigner here or as an alien here. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Hmm. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. Redeem means purchase. You were not purchased. You weren't bought back with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or spot. So these verses, verses 17 through 19, they get into the right motivation for following Jesus. They are a lesson on what our motive, what, what is our mind motive supposed to be? What is your motive supposed to be as you follow the Lord? That's what these, uh, these verses address. The motivation for being holy. It says in, uh, uh, in verse 15, conduct yourselves. Uh, it, it, says, it says, rather, it says, be holy in all your conduct, in all your behavior. What's my motive for that? What's your motive for that supposed to, to be? The motive for conforming, not to former lust, but conforming or imitating or becoming like Christ, a reflection of Christ. Why do we do that? What's the motivation for following Jesus? That's what these verses address. Now, back in verse 7, 
for those of you who were with us last week, Peter uses the illustration of a refining fire. Think of a, a furnace of fire where a goldsmith uh, refines gold. A, a Christian being in a great trial is like gold in a refining fire. When gold is refined in a furnace, what happens? We discussed this last week. Impurity, dross comes off the gold. The impurities come off of it. What's left is what? Pure gold. Goldsmith can see his reflection in there. Jesus wants to see the reflection in your life of him. When a Christian is put in the fiery furnace of a great trial, they too are refined. The impurities of their faith are exposed and burned off. And now listen, one of the things that gets burned off is what? Wrong motivation. Wrong, impure motivation, selfish motivations for following Jesus are exposed. All of us come into the body of Christ with all kinds of self-centered motivations that God wants to burn off in, in, in the trial and the fire. But if a Christian by faith, listen carefully, continues moving forward through the trial, not returning to the former lust, but going deeper in love with Jesus, he or she will come out of the trial, out of the furnace, with purified motivations. Are you with me? Their face shining like purified gold. So verses 17 through 19 discuss uh, two. And I'm tempted to say, the two, but there may be others, but two, uh, perhaps the most important motivations for living a godly life. There are these, two. One, the fear of God. That's in verse 17. Verses 18 through 19, though it doesn't use the word, it's the love of God. These are the two motivations. After all the impure motivations are burned off, as you continue to move forward with Jesus, here's what's left, and it's beautiful. It's like refined gold. The fear of God is like refined gold in your life. Don't let anyone try to convince you otherwise. Not a very popular thing to teach today. It happens to be what the Bible teaches repeatedly. We'll discuss what it means, though, because there is some misunderstanding what fear of God means, but then there's the love of God. The love of God. We begin our walk with God with all kinds of crazy motivations. We we want God, we want him in our life and to follow him because it's going to make us famous or make us rich or make us powerful. We have our life perfectly mapped out as to what God is going to give us and in what order there's going to be a spouse, a house, a career, a kids, a healthy retirement, Nothing wrong with believing that God can and does bless his children with these things. Nothing wrong with that. But if that, if any of those is the core motivation for following Jesus, it's a wrong one and God's going to get at it. He will, I promise you. God is faithful to see your faith purified so that you are left with pure motivations, mainly the fear of God motivating you to follow Jesus and, and live obe- as obedient children, to use Peter's words, and the love of God. Let's start with the fear of God. Verse 17 says this, if you call on 
the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So listen, this is what he's saying. God is holy. Part of his holiness is that God is just. We heard that this morning, Channon's middle name. Justice. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. His middle name is uh, Justice. His first name is, means grace or love. Love and justice. We don't plan these things around here, but it, you know, it was a great introduction to this message. God is just. He's a just judge. When you become a child of God by putting your faith in Christ, he doesn't stop being a judge. Do you get that? That's so important. When you put your faith in Christ and become a child of God. He doesn't stop being a judge. The good news is that he becomes your father. And let me tell you, having a, 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 a father who's a perfect judge, that's not a bad thing. That's a very safe and secure thing. Now, important, once God is your father, the judgments that he makes concerning your life have nothing to do with where you will spend eternity. Very important that you understand that. That issue has been settled the moment you put your faith in Christ. As a child of God, your place in eternity is secure forever. Uh, verse uh, 4 told us that it's, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It will never fade away. So once God is your father... The judgments he makes concerning your life will have nothing to do with where you spend eternity. His judgments will have only to do with disciplining you, chastening you, and drawing you back to him. That's what the judgments are, are, are about. There's many references in the New Testament to Christians, children of God, being judged in this life. Now, there's also going to be a, a judgment when we uh, uh, get to heaven. For Christians, it's called the judgment of the Bema seat, where rewards are given out, and we give account for our life. There's also, in the Bible, what's called the great white throne judgment. It's for unbelievers who, who rejected the Holy Spirit, who rejected Jesus. Uh, this supremely is talking here, though, um, about He's going to be an on, have an ongoing role as being a judge of your life. Think Luke chapter 15, I believe it is, the, the, the story of the prodigal son. You're familiar with it. The younger son gets an inheritance from his father before his father died. Wow, what a father. And he goes off to a faraway place loaded with cash and blows the whole thing on wine and women. What happened? He was judged by a heavenly father. He was judged. He was chastened. He was disciplined. And he was, yes, punished. Thank God for fathers who punish us. Punish us. God's a faithful father to do that. He lost everything. He, he was judged and sentenced to a pig farm. I remember going to a pig farm a few times when I was a kid. They were pretty, pretty cool places, but not for a Jewish boy. Not, no. He, he was sentenced to a pig farm, and, and, and praise the Lord he was. Why? Because once he got there, he looked at what the pigs were eating, their food, and said, oh, man, if I could only have some of that pig slop. If I could only have some of it. 
What happened next? Man, that pig food, it's like smelling the coffee, smelling the pig food. He came to his senses, right? He said, wait a second, what am I doing here? I need to get back to my father, which he did. God does the same thing with you if you return to your former lust. He will do the same thing with you. And by the way, lust can mean anything. We normally think, you know, drugs, sex, alcohol. It can mean working like crazy. It can mean sports. Some of you soccer guys, you know what I mean by that. You lust after this soccer stuff. You better be not returning too much to the former lust. Actually, everything in moderation, right? Um, as someone who watched the Argentina game yesterday and was very happy with the result. But um, anyway, uh, uh, it can be anything. But if you substitute God with former lusts and you return to them, God's going to judge you. And that's why it says here in verse 17, if you call on God the Father who without partiality, meaning he doesn't treat one better than than the other, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Meaning you need to fear the Lord because he is a faithful judge. He's an all-wise judge. You can't trick the Lord. You can't manipulate him. Come on, Dad, I really didn't mean it when I punched my brother in the nose. Really? Okay, no punishment. No, no, that's not going to happen with the Lord. And for that reason, we need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Not the kind of fear that you have of of an alcoholic father who comes home and just randomly hits you or punishes you. That's the problem people have with the term fear of God. It has nothing to do with that. It's an all-wise, perfectly just God who is never going to give you any kind of chastening or punishment that's unfair. We should rest in tremendous amount of security that he's like that. So the second motivation, fear of God and love of God. The fear of God and the love of God. The motivation for living a a godly life. So the love of God is discussed in verses 18 and 19. However, I can't help myself. Before I move off of verse 17, I need to just go off topic for a second. Can I get someone's permission to do that, to go off topic? Because if I ask my wife, she's not going to let me. So (laughs) Uh, sorry, Stephanie, you're outvoted. (laughs) I'm just going to, I can't, I just can't help myself. This is off topic, but notice how verse 17 says this. If you call on the Father... Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. It says, if you call on the Father. Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. In other words, if you call on the Father, you need to live in obedience to the word of God. If you call on the Father, you need to be Christ-like in your walk. Here's the point. And I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I don't know how oftentimes I hear folks calling out to God, crying out to God, praying to God. Meanwhile, they're in all kinds of sin. All the time I see this. They, they, are, in, they are holding on to sin as if it was their life, and they won't let it go. And meanwhile, they're calling out to the Father. 
crazy. Listen, if you are in a lifestyle of sin, why would God support your lifestyle by answering your prayer? God loves you. He loves you. That's where we're going right now. The next thing was the love of God, but he, he for, motiv- for, for li- being motivated to live a godly life, but he loves you. He's not going to answer your prayer and support a, a life that he knows is going to destroy you. He wants to help you come out of the lifestyle, not help you to stay in it. Okay, should I move on? Let's move on. What is your motivation for living a godly life? What is going to make me think, God, I really, really, really want to live, uh, to live for you and obey all of your word? Again, the fear of God, the fear of God, and the love of God, and the love of God. The fear of God, verse 17, and the love of God. Verse 18 and 19 doesn't mention the word love. But that's clearly here, in my opinion, what it's referring to. Verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things. So it's saying you need to conduct yourself. You need to obey, you need to obey God, verse 18, because you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Fear of God is a good motive for living a godly life. But there's a much better motive, and that is the love of God. It's such a more powerful motive I've never seen someone sustain a walk with God based solely on the fear of God. Never. Not even close. The people I see with a walk of God that lasts, that continues, that grows, it's always the love of God motivating them without exception. Again, I don't want to minimize the fear of God. so important that we have it. But the love of God. What is the love of God based on? Verse 18 says this. You know... It's again, before verse 18, he's telling them, you need to obey God and obey his word. Verse 18 says, because you know that that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, that word redeemed, it means to be purchased. Now, he's writing to brothers and sisters of Christ, Christians throughout the Roman Empire, everyone reading this would immediately have known what he meant by redeemed. Everyone. Because the word was a word that was used for slaves to buy their freedom. It's estimated that six million Romans, not Romans, but men and women living in the Roman Empire were slaves. Six million. And so a Roman citizen, rather a citizen, a slave working for a Roman citizen, or for that matter, a slave working for, for anyone at that time, you could redeem yourself. You could get enough money. You could purchase your freedom. And so 
the, the people receiving the letter, they had seen the slave trading. They had seen the platforms uh, uh, with the slaves on top of them, with their owners and, and the br- slave brokers around them uh, doing the selling. They had seen that. And, there's, and, and, and what he's telling them, look, you need to live your life for Christ and obey his word. Why? Because you were redeemed. You were like a slave sitting on a platform with no rights and no hope. And someone came and stood in your place. Someone paid the money and got up and stood in your place. And then himself was made a slave for you. It says you were redeemed not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb lamb without blemish and without spot. Let me tell you uh, what that does when you think about the fact that you were redeemed from slavery, from the slave trade. What does that make? What does that happen in your, in your heart? It makes you love God. It makes you want to give him your all. It makes you want to absolutely surrender to him. It makes you want to be holy. Why? Because he is holy. And then the verse continues in verse 18. It says, what were you redeemed from? Your aimless conduct. Let me tell you, I don't know about you. But when I think of what my conduct was, what my life was about before Jesus saved me, it was completely aimless, purposeless, no direction. It was crazy madness. It it, it says again in verse 18, you were redeemed from your aimless conduct. Now, what does that do? You know, we spoke a few weeks ago about what to do in your devotion time, and I always recommend that you just take some time to remember what you were redeemed, what you were saved from. Not that you should, you know, meditate on all the goriness of, of your past life, but a taste of it, yes. Just remember, wow, yes, Lord, you, you, you saved me from my aimless conduct. And and so what does that do to us when we reflect on us? Well, it makes us want to love God. It makes us want to give him our all, to live for him, to obey him in, in everything that is about him. And then finally in verse 19, it says, with the precious blood of Christ we were redeemed as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Micah, we're in Micah on Sunday nights. If you've never been, gone through a season of of Sunday nights, we teach through the Old Testament, I strongly, strongly recommend that you join us for a season, at least. The people that we have really seen grow here at Calvary Chapel in the city over the last 12 years are those who have become grounded in the Old Testament. And we're in the book of Micah now. And in Micah, the last chapter, one of the 
one of the, I know there's many of these verses, but one of the most wonderful verses in the whole Testament. Uh, he, he, Micah, by the Holy Spirit, saying, who is a God like you? Who forgives iniquity and passes over transgression and delights in mercy. Mercy means forgiveness, but it really it's so much more. Who, and loving kindness. Who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over transgression? Who delights in mercy and loving kindness? Our problem, our problem is that indeed no one is like God. And so we're very unfamiliar with anyone behaving like him. I, I, I think it says, who is like you, God, who delights in, in forgiveness, in mercy, in loving kindness? It says, delights in mercy. Now, who do you know who really delights in giving forgiveness? I don't know about you, but when I forgive, when I choose to forgive, I don't delight in it. I, 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 have, I have, you know, particularly, you know, we, we, we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness, Jesus tells us in, in Matthew chapter 6 to forgive every day because he knows we're going to be sinned against every day. And he knows that even something we forgave yesterday, we're going to wake up the next morning and, you know, I don't know, I have to work on this again. Maybe you have someone in your life who has wronged you. They've never acknowledged their wrong and, and insist to this day they're all right. For me, you know, there's been a couple times, not many times, where, where, where someone has really spoken evil about my wife. I tell you, man, you go ahead, speak evil about me. I, I, I'll forgive you. But when you speak evil about my wife, and then you never own up to it, that's a hard thing for me to forgive. So when I read this and I say, who is like you, who forgives iniquity, passes over the transgression, and delights in mercy and loving kindness, I will choose, and I do choose to forgive those who sin against me and, and sin against my, my wife or, or, or sin against my kids. But let me tell you, I don't delight in it. And for that reason, I struggle immensely with understanding the love of God. But that's a problem. Because the love of God, knowing the love of God, is supposed to motivate me to live a, a godly life. It's the number one motivation. Fear of God is great. Love of God is so much better. And it's only as I understand the love of God. And, and you know, as the Old Testament prophets looked at this, and they said they, he delights in mercy and loving kindness. Earlier on in this chapter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that the, even the prophets themselves looked at this stuff and said, well, how can we really know this? How can we really understand this? They didn't. But we, looking back 2,000 years, we understand so much more about what it means to delight in mercy, to delight in it. And that's because of the cross. 
who is like you, who forgives iniquity, passes over transgression, and delights in mercy and loving kindness, I will show you who, what it's like to be me. And he sent his son who lived a perfect life for you. He was whipped and beaten and he was, had iron stakes uh, driven through his hands and his feet. And in verse 19 refers what poured out the precious blood of Christ. And as we understand that, how much the Lord delighted in mercy and loving kindness. And as a result, we were given the cross. We understand his love, and so therefore we can love others. The love of Christ. We can love others. So the fear of God and the love of God, and and, and we'll, we'll just close with the remaining verses here. It says, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, since you have been purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. You know, when we're in a fiery trial, a really nasty one, we have the temptation to go back to our former lusts. And let me tell you, there's also a temptation to withdraw our love for those around us. What he's saying here is don't do that. Don't do that. He says, I know you're in a, in a trial. I know it, it feels like or in actuality you're being torn apart by, by beasts. But at the end here, verse 22 says, by the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That word fervently, it means to be stretched out. And so what happens when we are in a time of great trial, great affliction, we're in a season of our life we never ever wanted to be in, we have a temptation to draw into our own little world and shut everyone else out and not love. Let me tell you, I have seen mature Christians walking with the Lord for years All of a sudden, they're hit with a trial, something that is just like being in a fiery furnace, and and they begin to lash out at the very ones who are closest to them. That's the temptation in, 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 in times of trial. Peter's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. And notice here what he underlines. Who are they supposed to love? It says, one another. It says, have a sincere love of the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. Love one another fervently. I know it takes me, that word fervently means stretching out. Yes, it stretches us to love in the middle of a trial. But don't stop loving when you're in the middle of a time of affliction. That's what he's saying. It's the worst thing that you can do. It was such a blessing being here last Sunday night. We had a communion 
a night of communion. And on our night of communion, people get up here. We have an open mic. People just share answered prayer. People share their spiritual gifts. Uh, people share what they're going through. It's a time of encouragement and building up, and up but also a uh, time to speak to the church body. And I asked her permission to do this, but Jessica Taylor got up here, and it was just such a blessing to be in this room last Sunday night. Why? Because she shared the, 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 the furnace of fire that she has been in with her husband, Andrew. They found out about a year ago that it is biologically impossible to have children. All kinds of hopes and dreams dashed. And one of the things that we do on, uh, uh, on Sunday night when someone shares like this is, 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 we, is one of the pastors will get up here and say, okay, as you were hearing this, you other people here, when you were hearing Jessica speak, was God saying something in your heart that you're supposed to say to her? And so some folks got up and they shared, and it was like crazy powerful time. <laughs> it's just fabulous. But the one thing that impressed me the most is that if you look at their life in the last year, they fervently loved the brethren. Andrew's been with me every Wednesday morning at 6.30. He's crazy. A.M., praying every Wednesday morning. He didn't say, well, you know, I served God enough. I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I deserve a little, after all this, I deserve a little sleep to sleep in or whatever. And I've seen them both love the brethren. Not lashing out, not blaming their problems on this brother or this sister or the Lord, but they've continued moving forward. And it's just such a testimony of the love of, uh, and the faithfulness of God. Verse 7 says, we're in these trials so that the genuineness of our faith is revealed and that glory, praise, and honor will be given to Jesus Christ on the day of his visitation. Don't you want that testimony for your life? In sincere love of the brethren, love one another, even in the midst of this trial you're in, fervently stretching yourselves out with a pure heart. Let's pray. If the worship team could... Uh, could please come up as well as if you've been asked to pray up here please come up Lord we we just thank you for this picture of your life your word says and we cry in our own hearts who is a God like you where is there anyone like you? We got our answer this morning. Nowhere. There is no one like you, God. And we praise you for revealing that to our hearts. Who is a God like you who delights in forgiving, delights in loving kindness? delights in mercy. You delight in giving it 
Lord, even after years or generations of, 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 of rebellion, you delight to give loving kindness, to wrap your arms around us after a season of rebellion or disobedience. Lord, I pray for anyone in here, Lord, who's in that place, that they would understand that to the full. Lord, give us a healthy fear of you. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's what your word says. Lord, many of us came into our relationship with you with an unhealthy fear of you. No, give us a healthy fear of you, Lord. It's a sweet thing. But Lord, most of all, give us that wonderful, abounding vision of your love for us. And Lord, we, don't, we know we, we need to look no for, further from that vision than the cross. And by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would speak to the men and women and children in this room as to what that cross means, Lord. It means love that we can't even describe with human words. And Lord, help us, as your word says, by the Holy Spirit, without him it's impossible, Lord, to love each other fervently, Lord. Help us to be those people so that, Lord Jesus, on the day of your visitation, you would be, all glory, praise, and honor would would go to you and that you, Lord God, would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can rise now for the closing worship song. Anyone who needs prayer, maybe you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. I didn't come to Jesus. I didn't enter into a relationship with him until I was in my early 20s. Yet I'd been in church a good, better part of my life. The Bible says it's, we enter into a relationship with Jesus really simple process we say okay Lord I'm opening up my heart please come in take over the throne that's in my heart where I have been sitting my whole life and you take it over and save me if you've never if you've never done that come up and, 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 and pray with one of the folks up here now or if anything else has been stirring around in your heart as I've been speaking, you're thinking of that person who's hard to love. Or you haven't been loving and you need to confess to a brother or sister. Or you're in a fiery trial and you need to not, and you're tempted to return to your former lusts. Or be unloving to those around you. We're a family here at Calvary Chapel. Come up and pray as we, as we worship now together. God bless you.